Hello, everyone. We're glad you found us, and welcome to our podcast at AntiqueAuctionForum.com. We hope you find this show entertaining and informative. I'm in Massachusetts, and I'm visiting with the old-time dealer friend of mine, Paul DeCoast. How are you doing, Paul? How are you doing? Thank you for inviting me in your wonderful home. Thank you. And uh, beautiful collection, very nice. Thank you for letting me see everything. And uh, I've known you for years. You've come to auctions. I've seen you around forever. I think you even used to have a ponytail, if I remember right. I did, for yeah. a long time. Right? Yeah, yeah. I always thought of you as a person with extreme knowledge of uh, early antiques and how did you get I, I, I you know I don't have it any more than anybody else in fact a lot of times a guy recently asked me to give a lecture on navigational instruments mm-hmm. I says I don't think I'm the one I said, I know a lot about them but I only know it from an antique dealer's point of view we learn things and we learn them in uh, quick little groupings and then we put together the groupings into something that's useful as, as information Mm-hmm. And a lot of times, you know, you'll study around the periphery of that. Uh, you'll become familiar with it, and over a long period of time, 35 years, you, you get a lot of that information. Yeah. And if you got a retentive memory, well, you're lucky. You know, and that's what I that what I have, really. Yeah, yeah. Now, um, I, I've known you as someone that deals in a lot of nautical items and yeah. stuff like that, but you, you basically collect everything. Oh, yeah. You know, and in fact, that's part of the fascination about it, because... Um, each item that you collect, each category, uh, demands not just investigation, but knowledge. Mm-hmm. And it's it, the amount of knowledge to buy something like a candle stand that your little thing is sitting yeah. on here, uh, just to realize what that's all about mm-hmm. is amazing. You know? And then if you take the next item, like a, a skewer holder, What's a skewer holder? You know, a bunch of iron hanging on a rack. Well, what's it for? You know, and and what about fake ones? And you know, <laughs> yeah. somebody can make that in two seconds flat, and they have. There's a couple oh, yeah. guys down in Connecticut, that did. but yeah. the real ones are really unique. And um, most of the, you probably got about one tenth of one percent that might know what it is, or even begin to want to buy one. You mm-hmm. know, but uh, yeah, they they made for old houses. Yeah, yeah. And how did you get your start in the antique business? My father, uh, I actually uh, taught art school before I got into antiques. And really? I, yeah, and I taught art for 11 years, actually overlapping in the antique business, too. And while I was doing it, uh, teaching art at first, I needed to supplement my income because it was so bad. Huh. Uh, I'm teaching at a college level, and really, it was bad. Really? Wow. So, sort of to make some extra money, I would buy sports equipment and um, art equipment. I'd sell the art equipment to the school store. Huh? I'd sell the sports equipment to all my friends to ski. <laughs> I even go to the ski show instead of a booth. So, uh-huh. that led one day to going to one of these... Um, custom house auctions with a post office type of thing where mm. people don't claim things. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Bought some of the lots from there, and one of the lots I bought was a lot of antiques. Nothing great, but just stuff that somebody brought in from Europe, you know. Mm-hmm. And we made some money, and I said, that was kind of fun. And my father gave me the stuff that was in his cellar, blue decorated crock, you know, a Boston mm-hmm. rocker. 
And uh, we made $100 at the Amherst Flea Market with that junk. Ah. And we said, and this, this, is, well, this is more fun than it, than it looks. So, but back in the 70s, we're talking, right? 1974. Yeah. Uh-huh. And so we came to our first auction up here in Newburyport. It was Chris Snow, and it was his first oh, yeah. auction. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And we bought a couple of neat things, a trunk that was locked. That he said, it must have something valuable in it. So I spent $75 having a key made for it. <laughs> That's a lot. And there was just nothing but clothes in it. Typical. <laughs> so, yeah, it was as much as the trunk, actually. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I did sell it, broke even, I got made a profit. But the first year I made thirteen, fifteen hundred bucks. I said, and we didn't work very hard. We just did a few flea pockets. So mm-hmm. next year we did a couple more, and uh, we made twice that. Mm-hmm. Next year after that we made twice that again. Uh-huh. And we're still... Going, going. I don't know about the twice that, but I mean, uh, <laughs> not twice every year. Yeah, no. yeah. It got, it got very profitable to a point. Yeah. Uh, now we're seeing the downside slide. You know. Yeah, yeah. We can talk a little bit about that in a while. But what uh, what uh, steered you toward the nautical maritime? Actually, I, I did two things. I, I I looked at my. I was friends with a, a guy who was teaching me about Americana, and you know who he is, and. Uh, he, he, you know, I was learning from him. I was learning from Eddie Weissman, who was teaching me a lot. You know, Eddie was a very knowledgeable guy and, and willing to share his information. And yeah. A lot of these guys were. Ken Snow was the old-time dealer in Newburyport. And uh, when I got home from school every day or when I had the day off, I was over to the old jail with him, you know. Mm-hmm. And he was departing knowledge to me. He loved to teach. I mean, he was... it's uh, great. Yeah. And he would even... He almost gave me things like... Uh, a pile of trade axes sitting in the corner that he and Chris had bought back from Morocco or someplace, you know. Uh-huh. And I say, how much for those? And there would be twenty-five of them there. Say five dollars a piece. Oh, I'll take them all. You know, <laughs> <laughs> off to a flea market. Trade axes is seventy-five dollars a piece, and I'm paying, you know, I'm paying about five dollars a piece yeah. for them. Yeah. And he had some neat things, some lighting and stuff like that. And he taught me about all this other crap that he had, which was. Things that I had never seen before. A miniature Thomas Kane's chain-decorated pitcher. Mm. I've never seen one since either, by mm. the way. Mm. And I didn't buy it. And this mm. dealer, Roy Williamson, walked <laughs> in, picked it up and bought it and made tons of money. And I said, yeah. nice lesson learned. You know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, for the hard way, you know. Yeah, yeah. Chris Snow taught me a great one one day. He walked into my house. And I'd just gotten back from this big flea market down at one of the trades I was... And I had bought a little a Liverpool picture, and it said, Republicans are not always ungrateful. And it has two presidential portraits on it. I can't uh, remember which ones. And uh, I thought I'd school it. You know, I paid mm-hmm. $165 for this little thing. So I put it on my table, and, uh, and I was waiting for Chris to come in to show it to him. And he comes in, and he picks it up and puts it down, walks on by, and he says, you paid your tuition for today, didn't you? I look at what are you talking about? He said, it's a fake. Yeah, I said, you just picked it up. How do you know it's a fake? Paid your tuition. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah he said, well, when you put it down, he said, you feel the weight of that thing? He uh-huh. says, yeah, it's fake. Wow. And he, he says, there's three different ones. And he told me about a couple of the others who were fake. I swear, in the next six months, I ran into each and every one of them. Really? Yeah, all three of them. I yeah. still see them occasionally out there, but... You know, one of the things that comes up in this podcast all the time is fakes. And uh, because, uh, you know, a lot of times when I'm talking to a specialist, I ask them, how do they protect from fakes? Yeah, well, and eventually, Scrimshaw is the worst in the world. Oh, yeah. 
And I, I decided to tell you one of the reasons I took Scrimshaw on and Scientific Instruments mm-hmm. is that I knew that a lot of people didn't want to put in the effort to be able to tell if a Scrimshaw piece is right or wrong, mm-hmm. uh, be able to tell if the, the drawing is right or wrong. Uh, I had that artistic background, which is oh, yeah. something that puts me an edge on, on me. Sure. I can't afford $50,000 paintings because I was not in that category at that time at all, you know. Mm. So I, I would have loved to have bought $50,000 paintings, but I would have gotten killed anyway. Uh, much easier <laughs> to start at the low levels and work your way through it. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know? mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Definitely. That's actually good advice. No, I mean, it's, it, most people are impatient. Mm-hmm. In fact, I had some genius guy who thought, you know, he had an IQ of 160 or something like that. I can learn this business in two years, and I locked him. Mm-hmm. He says, yeah, sure. Yeah. And uh, five years later, he still wasn't anywhere. Yeah. I mean, he had this genius of a mind of remembering things, but he had no, you know, it takes something else beyond that. Touching sure. things and experience. I exactly. Mean, two things. Exactly. That's, a, that's the thing. You can't learn the stuff from a book. you got to yeah. handle it. Hold it. You going to the jail was the best thing I could do because I saw so much stuff. <laughs> you have to really explain what you're talking about here. Cause going well, the jail being the old antique shop. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, the, the guy, you know, he was a wealth of stuff. And uh, even if I didn't buy something, just seeing it go through his hands mm-hmm. was enough to make an education to me. I remember that one day he came back from Skinner's and he was so pleased that he had a four-foot-long Bellamy Eagle Whoa. with banner, you know? Oh, nice. And it said, Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Wait, did you ever see that one before? And I, I, I was stunned by it. I said, oh, that's wonderful. I, I understand why you like it. He said, yeah, I'm going to take it to the Ellis Show. I think I'll get $1,400 for it. <laughs> and I'll let it go out the door. Mm-hmm. I, I should have, you know, I really should have. Bought that thing in an instant. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't want to tell you what it's worth today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It it was just it was one of the great four footers that you could ever ever find. Yeah. Now for the listeners, there's listeners all over the world that listen to this. So, uh, Bellamy Eagle was John Haley Bellamy lived in Kittery Point, Maine, Maine, which is not too far away from here. He studied under a skillion, which was a great ship carver in Boston during the time of the Civil War, mm-hmm. and he worked out of the Navy Yards then, and he did a few things uh, out of the Navy yards, which were for Navy ships such as gangway boards. Yeah. Uh, he, he did a pilot house eagle. He did a sternboard eagle. Mm. Which, in fact, pilot house eagle is beautiful. I yeah. The, the, the Wyatts own that. Oh, is that right? Yeah, that's wow. what it is. Wow. She bought, and I say the mother, not the, not the president, Mrs. Wyatt, uh, bought uh, all of the collection of drawings and uh, everything that Frost had up in uh, Portsmouth. Really? Yeah, and now she missed a, few, a little bit of it, got out in the street before that. And and recently, some of that came back in. Mm-hmm. Uh, his toolbox and a whole mess of uh, unfinished eagles as a collection. Bougeau turned them up, and I turned Jamie on to him, and mm-hmm. uh, they went after him to the tune of $90,000 and didn't get him. Wow. PBD Essex bought him. Wow, how about and that? That's where they are, and they're on exhibit right now, in fact. Well, you remember, you're talking about people that share knowledge, and one of the people that shared knowledge with me was uh, Bill Graham. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, great guy, and what a head full of knowledge that that guy had. Let me show you, tell you a story that's really cool. He had one of Leo's auctions recently. Uh, he gets a lot of stuff from the family. They'll throw it in the auction. Yeah, and they don't even advertise it. Mm-hmm. Then, you know, they don't even advertise it. They just put it on the table with the rest of the stuff. 
I walked over there and we're going through the stuff, and you know, and I don't even think about this very often. I should, I do more now after this one little thing, because <laughs> there's a pair of stockings uh, from the 18th century uh, mm-hmm. with what's called clocking down the side of them mm-hmm. in their original wrappers. What? Yeah, and there's a note on the wrapper that says that these stockings were taken by privateering by Captain Saltonstall on board the ship something or other, I can't remember that name, uh, and they sunk this English ship and you know, boarded it and took all their goods, and they gave the name of the English ship, mm-hmm. and that all of those goods um, you know, were brought back to shore to one of the Connecticut cities or towns right at the bottom of one of the peninsulas. And apparently Mr. Saltonstall must have taken the stockings and decided to take them up back here to Massachusetts because Benedict Arnold led a group into the city and burnt it flat huh. about three months later. Wow. So the stockings weren't at the warehouse where all this other stuff was. You know? <laughs> so they turn up in a set of drawers with Billy Graham after he died. Mm-hmm. So I, I have this pair with me. I have them at the uh, Deerfield show. I'm sitting there talking to Maven, the guy who was in charge of fabrics out there at the time. And a girl comes up and says, how much are these stockings in the case? Mm-hmm. So I tell her the whole story, just like I told you about what the importance of the stockings are. And I said, they're $1,200. And she says, thank you very much, and walks away. Mm-hmm. And Maida looks at me. She didn't buy them? Yeah. How much are they? We'll buy them. We'll buy them. <laughs> you know? yeah. They didn't even have a pair in their collection. Oh, wow. And then they have this fabulous history go with it, you know. Mm -hmm. And in mint condition, in fact, he did an exhibit about a month later for the four fabric disciplines that they had. Uh, And the stockings are the middle, one of the uh, main things. They even talked about the first uh, pair made mechanically, Mm. which was uh, for Queen Elizabeth in something like uh, 1590 or something like that. Really? Yeah, by a machine, too. Wow. Yeah, but made for the Queen. Wow. Wow. So that's something. Well, I thought it was a great story. Now, our next item I found, and I tried to go to the to Deerfield with it, uh, the guy said, does it have a history like the other one? <laughs> yeah. How often do you find that? It's yeah. not that often, but Bill Graham was the type of guy that did. Yeah. Bill Graham was an amazing man. Amazing. Uh, I'm going to take a little jag here. I'm going to ask you, what what is your, can you talk about your best find, your most, or most interesting find? Well, it, it goes back to the jail again. Place to stay. Yeah. But Ken Snow, we started an antique show in town for the benefit of the uh, Maritime Museum. Mm-hmm. And uh, one or two years into it, and it wasn't very far, it, was a, it must have been the second year, maybe not the first. Uh, Ken Snow, you know, just as the, as the show would happen, I would go over there first because the very first year, uh, Chris Snow had a great ball and claw foot cabaret leg bed really? that I never even got to see it went out of that place well I've never even seen a, oh, I can't think I mean, of a the, 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 the green for yeah. and he was so far off the money on it it wasn't funny mm-hmm. you know I mean where was it the, made? Boston oh my god wow. Wow. fabulous thing North Salem I don't really know mm. I just remember the bed I just remember just, I was stunned mm. I mean I would have given my IT for it and I yeah. you know I, I was learning, and it was because it was it was around 1980 when all of this was taking place, mm-hmm. and I really didn't know as much as I needed to know by any stretch of the imagination. But I was, you know, hungry for all this knowledge. You know, 
Mm. And I was learning about instruments, which was my favorite thing. And uh, you talk about scientific instruments. Scientific. Mm-hmm. And this was a scientific thing that I since then I've owned about twenty of these various types, but uh, each one is a unique thing unto itself, and that is uh, what's called an orrery. A what? An orrery. Orrery named after the Earl of Orrery uh, because he wanted one built for him. And this guy, I think it was Tuttle, uh, the English maker at the time, uh, made him one, in, a grand one, in silver and brass and all that. And what it is, it is that, to give you an explanation of this whole thing, uh, people who did clocks like to do these. This was a Willard one. Willard? A Willard. Simon Willard? Or? Aaron. Aaron Willard. Yeah. And he made them for, uh, he made one for an academy down in Pennsylvania called Chester Academy. Chester Academy. And he made this one, and he made one other that I, I've heard about, haven't seen, okay? And I think that's all the production that we know about. There could be another one out there. Uh, Rittenhouse made a grand one for uh, one of the universities on PA. Another clock maker. Yeah, yeah. which is huge and big. Mm-hmm. And uh, the normal ones that you see, there's a host of people in England that were making them. Uh, almost as uh, for academies and things like that, but they made some really nice-looking ones. And I've owned a lot of the different types. One of the f- most fabulous types is a brass drum on a post with a cabaret leg at the bottom of it. Mm-hmm. And then your planets all emanate out to ivory planets at the end of these. What's and as you crank it, each oh, planet yes, goes exactly its given speed. Yeah. Well, there was also a mechanism that went with it. Uh, the, one of the mechanisms would be the terrarium, where the Earth was there and it rotates on its axis around. And yeah. at the same time, the moon is running around it. Yeah. And there's a fluctuating walkway that the moon runs on. So it can be uh, either in the southern or the northern hemisphere is when it needs to be. Mm-hmm. And it's unbelievable how it's all geared together to work this way. You know? Now, they don't, they never really got down some of the planets. Uh, uh, orbit, uh, um, have an elliptical orbit. Oh, yeah, and, and that's not done yeah. in this because, uh, in fact, you know, the Earth revolves around the sun that way as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, when you have a sundial, sometimes they have corrections on it uh, yeah. to, to actually correct that, and I've had that type of thing. Well, those, uh, those, are, those are really rare and valuable. If, if, a, if I'm picturing what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this particular type. Do I see a, a kind of something over there in the other this side of the room? Uh, well, that's a yeah. They're not always that. That yeah. is uh, solar indicators and things like that. Other yeah. teaching devices that they used. Mm-hmm. I got into all of those, and I and I love the global ones uh, just because they're fascinating unto themselves. You know? mm-hmm. And I have a small collection of about six or seven different types that are six inches. Yeah. Uh, in size, but you know, the one I should have kept was this one I'm telling you about. It was a Willard, uh, isn't that something? Yeah, but listen to how it happened. It was just an interesting thing. In fact, if you look at the facts and figures of the whole thing, it's it's terribly fascinating. It was it started off by being in Ken Snow's house, and I saw it. I said, "Oh my God! Oh my God!" And I was having another doing somersaults. <laughs> Ken, how much is well, this? Wrong thing to do when you're buying. <laughs> yeah, but you know, I, I I had to have this. Thing. Yeah. How much is this, Ken? How much? Well, Chris Snow, Chris is, is really the owner. You know, he got it out of this estate down in Concord, Mass, of a lawyer or something like that. Mm-hmm. I said, "Well, get me a price." 
Well, the price was $52,000. Oh. This is back in 1980. Whoa. Which, I said, well, that puts me out. I said, I'd love to buy that, but I said, I can't afford $52,000. And I had no idea that he would even negotiate. Mm. All right, so I and I, I would never. Have you been dealing with him, but you just didn't negotiate. Well, I, I was never aggressive like that with yeah. people. I just mm-hmm. wasn't that way. Mm-hmm. You know, if somebody wanted something, I mean, I bought some great, I bought some great things from him, and so I, I didn't push him. I, when he said to give me the price, I figured that's what he wanted. Yeah, uh, and I, I, so I never pushed him because I got so many great things. Yeah. Yeah. So I let let it go. I let it go, but dreamed of it every freaking minute I could put my eye on it. You know? <laughs> well, I didn't realize, but a consortium of people, uh, an English antique dealer, uh, two English antique dealers, somehow bought it from them, and they only paid in the twenty two, twenty five range, <laughs> which I would have paid instantly. Wow. You know, which yeah. I I didn't know about it. Yeah. And it's funny how things go. Mm. Well, these idiots, <laughs> I, I, I call them idiots because I know one of them is actually a nice guy. The other one was a big-time antiquilla too, from New York, uh, down on Route 7 in New York. Down there. Uh, anyway, he uh, he had this thing. Oh, they, they decided to put it into an auction, so they put it into Sulby, so they was uh, down in New York. Mm-hmm. Somebody from one of the auction galleries or one of the museums, and I don't remember the girl's name, Sort of vetted it for a whole mess of people. Told the Able Planetarium about it, told the Time Museum, and told the Philadelphia Museum, and a couple of other people. Then it was missing parts that might not be in the right box, and that it might be this and it might be that. Mm. Gave them a lot of bad information. Because mm. uh, she didn't know what she was doing. You know? mm-hmm. uh, I was lucky enough to eventually, well, I, I get to it. Uh, I knew where this other one was, and I knew the curator very well, by the way. Mm-hmm. So if I wanted to go in and see it, I had no problems with doing that mm-hmm. and play with it even. You know? mm-hmm. So before I got to that point, because I had no real good reason to do that, it disappeared from my mind, you know. But then it turns up at this auction, and I said, oh, Jesus, what's going to happen? Well, I got bought back in. Mm-hmm. It, didn't, it didn't meet its reserve. Mm-hmm. Because of the bad mouthing that this girl gave it. Yeah. And I think the reserve was up in around the 40s. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, this dealer in New York got it back, puts it in the shop. Now, there was one problem. There was a, where the earth was, there was a thing that was uh, on both sides of it that the guy couldn't, like a, a circular shed like this on a post, the guy couldn't figure out what it was for mm-hmm. and why it wasn't useful. Mm-hmm. So he threw it out. Oh. Yeah. And, <laughs> you know, and he left it the way it was, which was somebody had taken the track that the moon ran on, which was the thing that went on top of those two posts that you were supposed to have with the thing, and had taken the moon track and put it as a second ring around Saturn. Because <laughs> yeah. it fit, yeah. <laughs> they had taken the top axis of Earth and attached it to this thing that was above it, thinking that it attached on both sides. Actually, that thing above it was supposed to hold a night and day ring and separate night from day on, on the globe. You know? uh, by the way, is this like 1820 or something like that? Or? Right on the bottom, yeah. Uh-huh. I think the letter on the one down there was 1822. <laughs> they had the original bill of sale to them. To, to oh, that. Oh, isn't that nice? 
this one didn't have it and uh, didn't have the school or anything on it, but it was fine. They haven't well, you know. mm-hmm. uh, The planets were all ivory. There were three mechanisms. You had the planetarium mechanism, which was all the planets by themselves. You had the Earth with the moon revolving around, and I think there was another one that went with it as well. These would snap in by themselves, and you and they would fit into a different gearbox type of thing. So as you cranked it, other things would happen. You know, oh, so you cranked this? Okay. Every, every one of these would crank. They, yeah. would, they would crank in. They would, you know, as you take all the planets off, it would go into its own little place in the box, mm-hmm. and you would snap in the second mechanism, which was the three-inch Earth ball, with the moon revolving around it. Mm-hmm. And there was one more, I think, if I remember rightly. I think. And I'm not positive at this point if there was a third one or not. I thought there was. But some of them have them, and some of them don't. I can't, I can't remember this particular one. Anyway, one day I, I'm around, and this antique dealer locally came to me, and he said, um, you're buying a lot of ores and globes and everything. Do you think you could sell an orrery for us? Hmm. He says, I got this Aaron Willard one. <laughs> you got to be kidding me. I says, no, is it the one I think it is? He says, yeah, I don't know why we haven't been able to sell it. It's been sitting in a shop down there forever. Listen, all we want to do is you get 28000 out of it for us, and we'd be happy. Hmm. Hmm. I says, give it to me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I get this thing, and I team up with another guy, Ray a friend who's in the business called the Antiquarian Scientist. Mm-hmm. And he basically does scientific books, and he did instruments at the time. And he had a lot more contacts than I did, so it was better to utilize his contacts. Sure, yeah. And he had something that the Smithsonian wanted. Uh, he had run upon a uh, Rittenhouse tall case clock. And luckily, uh, the way the package went together... Uh, we were selling the orrery for 35000 I think it was, to the, to the museum. Uh, they were giving us, they, would, they, they couldn't have done it because they have a thing where they only have money for things more expensive than 50000 Oh, so you teamed it up with the clocks. Teamed it up with the clock, which made the 50000 and we got a deal. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and got that thing done. After I did it, I said, what did I do? Why didn't I just sell, sell it just 50? keep it? You know? <laughs> oh, why didn't you keep it? I should have yeah. kept it. Yeah. I should have kept it. I should have yeah. put it aside and kept it. I mean, I don't even yeah. want to guess what that's worth today. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's those type of things, the really rare pieces that are bringing the money today. And earlier, we just mentioned about some things have slumped down. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So let's, uh, um, oftentimes I tell people that, if you're dealing with the very best of something, you're fairly safe. And what, what is your feeling about that in today's market? Even that's sometimes kind of scary because, uh, um, well, right now it's okay, but, you know, everything has gone so bad in every other direction, it really makes you wonder, Yeah. you know, if yeah. it's going to go that way. Right now, here's how bad it is. Brown furniture like a desk or yeah. a six-draw chest. Brown is down, yeah. Yeah, but let's say if it has no... No real good redeeming features. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A six-bar chest. Mm-hmm. What do you want to pay for it? Yeah. hundred bucks? <laughs> Maybe hard, two? Hard to believe. I mean, these are, you know... These You're talking about a period piece. Of, yes. Period yeah. piece of furniture. Maybe not the best-looking one in the world, yeah. you know. Yeah. Probably with brasses that are worth more than the whole thing. Yeah. You know, and, and, and the problem is... Uh, this is what I think the problem is, anyway. The middle ground America, or the uh, average Joe, uh, 
is being so cautious they don't they don't have a lot of money that they want to put into something and also and when they see that everything is falling like that uh, they get scared of it sure then they're afraid of it because well, will it ever go up by well, $100? I think so, you know. <laughs> I, I, if I had the money, I'd be buying all of those at 100 bucks. Yeah. I don't have the place for them, but, you know, there's certainly... I, I know a couple of dealers who are doing that with certain items. One guy is buying beds. He bought one for $300 with his tester the other night. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Nobody's really interested in the beds, but that's, that's stupid money. Are we going to buy a reproduction that's going to be better than that? Yeah. You know? Yeah, what do you, you? Yeah. I, one of the things that uh, one of my friends who was an artist who went, it was a student of mine, but her, she's in the antiques. Uh, she um, basically has been doing these houses that are full, full painting and stuff like that for. That's what she does. Yeah, and nice. very expensive houses. You know. Yeah. She says, but she talks about a fireplace. They don't want a pair of van irons. They want just a fireplace. Oh. No, they like have no sim- sense to simplify or something. Yeah, so they they don't look at anything with any quality. The rugs they buy are reproductions, and they you know they're going to be worthless in a short period of time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it's almost like everything they're buying is part of a throwaway society. Yeah, and their sense of, of something having value by by existing is is not very very large. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The brains as well. <laughs> Sorry to say, <laughs> because I think it's stupid. You know, the things that we bought, uh, on the whole, we're going to make money on. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, we've lived with them, we've enjoyed them. Yeah, and even if the market goes south, I'm going to make a lot of money on them. Yeah. if it was at the top of the thing, I'd be making up uh, better than a lifetime's money. I mean, it would yeah. be fabulous money. Yeah. Uh, what do you think in, let's just say, in antiques? What do you think is hot right now? Hmm. Hmm. That's hot that to say. Th- Things that were hot are no longer, uh, in a lot of cases, the Americana market is hurting. Mm-hmm. You know, there are some people at the top end of it that are still buying some pretty good stuff, you know. Yeah. Uh, the scrimshaw market doesn't seem to be um, hurting so badly, but then again, um, you know, the people who are buying that, most of them have a lot of money. Yeah. 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 That's right. And you get a really nice... What's uh, what's this... In fact, you know, all these auctions right now, that's it. it's amazing to me how well the auctions are doing. Yeah. Oh, auctions are doing very well. Yeah. Yeah. And why well, can't the dealers in a shop or, yeah. you know, in they a used show... To, now <laughs> the dealers are consigning to auctions. Yeah. The, you know? the, the dealers in the shows, uh, you know, a percentage of them do okay each and every time. Mm-hmm. And there's a percentage that just sort of breaks even, and a couple guys get killed every time. What is the uh, the Scrim Shander uh, name that's really rare, a really high-end piece? It's like a woman's name, am I thinking? Yeah, the, the, the Susan's Teeth is what it is. But, yeah. Uh, there was a gentleman who sailed upon two different ships, in fact, mainly and one. That's the name of the ship, right? Yeah. Yeah, okay. And, and, but he sailed on another ship, too. They did some teeth on as well. But his name was Myrick, and uh, he did these very early on. They started about 1828, 29, something wow. like that. Wow, yeah, that is early Yeah, on. well, uh, this, the history of Firmshire is basically begins around that time in a way, because before that period, the uh, general consensus of opinion, I guess, of what they did with the whaling material was to trade it to uh, the Hawaiians for sandalwood, wow. which they traded with the Chinese on. 
Wow. To buy, bring back other stuff, you know. They were pretty crafty. They were crafty. Yeah. They were trying to make money off of whatever line they could make it off of yeah. at that time. Now, they were going to the Hawaii because they would make Camboas out of them. Hmm. But eventually, about 1820, and I say about that because I don't think it's a definitive date, is somebody down there said, hey, man, we got enough teeth, you know, yeah. to last a lifetime. <laughs> Let's stop doing this, you know. We're losing all our sandalwood. So, essentially, uh, the captains had this extra material around what to do with it. And mm-hmm. some of them said, okay, it would be a nice thing if the guys could keep busy if they're willing to work with this stuff as a material. Mm-hmm. And so some of them did scrimshaw, some of them did uh, swift, some of them did this the and that. And, and different captains would put up with certain differences. You know, Some guys would say, do whatever you want. It keeps you out of trouble. You know? mm-hmm. Others would say, listen, if it takes away from your work, you're not doing it, you know. Now, they had a lot of idle time. Uh, well, four years at sea. Yeah, isn't That's that a lot something? Of work four years at sea. Now, what makes a, a scrimshaw tooth out uh, above another one? What makes one... What well, well, first of all, this guy, Myrick, that we talk about, is yeah. so, so famous. He used a stencil. <laughs> Did he really? Yeah, yeah. And, it, it, and it kills me because all the scenes are exactly the same. Or a template or something like that. It wow. might have been a template of some type. Ah. But I don't find his work too terribly rewarding at all. Uh-huh. I, I, I find, you know, yet that, that tooth is liable to go for, uh, I know a friend that paid 80000 for one, and, and some yeah. of them are worth more than that. Yeah, yeah. But there are other artists that also fetch a lot of money that have been coming around. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> last year at Brimfield, good Brimfield story, a guy finds a tooth. Mm-hmm. He tries to call me. Mm-hmm. I, my phone didn't hear the ring or something. I didn't hear the ring. I, I missed the call. He goes and he gets some other dude on the floor that you and I both know and says, I, I think I found a great tooth over here. The guy who comes over and finds the tooth uh, buys it for, I, I heard, fourteen or 15000 mm-hmm. hearsay, you know. He gave the guy... Some material uh, that that he liked in the scrimshaw line, totaling about three hundred dollars. He takes the tooth and he uh, puts it in an auction at Ronnie Bourgeois. Yeah. I think it did. Uh, the guy that stayed with me that night actually, I uh, well, came to dinner that night down here. Uh, bought it for the tune of one hundred and sixty thousand dollars. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> Uh, the but fish, I, I got a little the big fish that got away. Yeah, but the, the guy who sold it should have given that guy who he gave three hundred dollars to. I think a lot more than that, really. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if yeah. he was my, and obviously he could have been my sauce because he was trying to call me. I, I certainly would have. You know, yeah. I mean, he deserves a five thousand dollar bill out of a check like that. At least. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, that's goodwill too to do something like that. Now that we're talking about ivory, mm. uh, let's. Uh, when I was in California, I gave you a call, and we were talking a little bit about the ivory situation. Let's talk about what's happening in the uh, court systems now with uh, the importing of ivory. There's a lot of things going on right now. Well, I think the government is trying to uh, prosecute a few people who may be on the edge of it mm-hmm. to try to prove their, uh, that they're going to be very serious about imported ivory and, and put a ban on it. They want to... Some of, some of the people, this particular judge that I know in one of the cases, I've heard rumors that she's bordering on uh, animal rights type of person. You know, mm-hmm. fanatical. And I know some people in that. The problem is there are people out there that are fanatical about it. Yeah. 
And I went to dinner with a bunch of them. And it was... That must have been a fun dinner. Oh, my God. <laughs> they were all vegans. Uh-huh. You know, and uh, listen, I got nothing wrong with it. Hey, that. I'm in California. I can, I can relate to all this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, was the, it was the animal stuff that went on and on and on. And, uh, mm-hmm. You know, and I, I just... You know, to each his own, you know, but it's some of, a lot of us go overboard with what we think. Well, we're talking antique ivory. I mean, this was... This the, was the, the problem. The, the antique ivory, you know, they, they would like to stop the flow of new ivory. Yeah. But the, the guys who are that. in charge at the various customs houses and, you know, a lot of times the court system even, really don't know what they're talking about. Yeah. You know? And, in fact, in, in, in a good idea behind this is... Um, there were some fishing game guys in Boston that rewrote the Matthews' law on this uh, exemption about uh, how you treated ivory and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. They wrote the law trying to emulate the federal law in some ways, but they went way the hell overboard because they didn't know what they were doing. They, they put on things like walrus, which were not endangered onto the act that they were putting together. Mm-hmm. And a, a, a test case came up, and the test case was done on Charles Street, uh, where this gentleman bought a tortoise and silver letter opener, Hallmark, 1905, mind you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, and a couple of teeth out of a shop, and a guy saw him buy it and turned them into the feds or to the state, actually. No, he uh, saw because, because he saw someone buy something out of a shop because he was buying an endangered species. And this was something self The way the new law had been written by these gentlemen, Uh if he complained about it and he saw an endangered piece being sold, that piece can be confiscated. Was he hanging around in the shop waiting for it to happen? He got his name somehow. I'm not quite sure how he did all of this. Uh But they came down, they confiscated the pieces from him. Uh, both the tortoise letter opener. Maybe it was the shop owner who, maybe it wasn't even the sale of it, but the fact that it was for sale in the shop. Mm-hmm. And they confiscated the tooth teeth that were there. The teeth had been bought out of a legitimate whaling estate that Chris Noah had sold. Mm-hmm. You know? And the letter opener had a hallmark on it, as I said. So they went to court. And uh, believe it or not, the, the Massachusetts won in this particular case. Uh, the guy got fined five hundred dollars apiece for each one of those things, and uh, uh, they were destroyed or taken by the government. And destroyed. <laughs> now the stupid thing is, they were they, the law that they had written was so far off base. You know, it was amazing. Hmm. You know, and so a federal judge, because by that time everybody in Massachusetts had heard about this, and uh, auctioneers didn't want to hold auctions. Yeah. You know, uh, dealers who dealt in it did want to quietly whisper to each other. <laughs> it was a joke. Everybody, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Uh-huh. One auctioneer said, I'm going to run an auction anyway. Let me see what happens. Uh-huh. Somebody else said, I'll turn you in if you do that. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> I'm serious. Jeez. It went through some stupid things. So they got a federal judge who collects furniture from in the Midwest, and one of the guys who knows everybody around him. Came back and helped everybody write a law, uh, rewrite the law, mm-hmm. get rid of the things that were stupid. And I, I even talked to them. A lot of us called up and talked to them individually about what was on the law and how stupid it was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's been rectified in that case. Yeah. But then you get a federal judge like this guy, who's prosecuting a friend of mine, and uh, it seems to me they're going out of their way mm-hmm. to be stupid about what they're doing. 
And and because of the fans, they may win anyway, you know. Yeah. And it's not fair. And we're talking people going to serve jail time. Yes, one guy's already uh, been uh, not just indicted, but is now in jail. Now, can can someone actually go to jail for actually buying or selling an antique piece? I mean, is that a possibility? Technically, no. Mm-hmm. But and what, this was part of the problem that uh, one of the pieces that he was talking about was definitely an antique piece, and, does uh, it, and the government failed to point that out. And they failed to point out that the whole transaction took place in the States. They said he smuggled the stuff in. But first of all, <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's very complicated, yeah. you know. Uh, and part of what my, my thing in the course might be is to um, try to give a value to this stuff that he, that he supposedly smuggled in, which he didn't, obviously. Hmm. You know, in fact, you know, Nina Hellman, he had a, a place yes. in Nina Hellman shop. Mm-hmm. And Nina, uh, in all the time that he was there, and he was there for, he's been there for a long time. Uh, he was, he went to school with this guy, and you know, I used to have him do my repairs way back when, when he was living up this way before he moved to the island. And I still had him do my repairs, although he's gotten too expensive. Uh, but all the time I knew him, all the time Nina knew him, we never saw him buy a bad tooth or mm-hmm. something that wasn't of the period. Yeah. He would reject it. He would say, where did it come from? I don't want it, you know. Mm-hmm. you know. And how they're getting him to prosecute is really beyond me. I mean, well, it's a bloody shame. He's he's trying to put two daughters through Marine. Uh, maritime? Maritime, got it. Yeah. 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 You know, he, so. they're, one of them's in school. The other one's about ready to go to school. His wife's a teacher. He was a teacher. Mm-hmm. And he does the spring shop business on the side. He's a, mm-hmm. He works his ass off. Is there some type of uh, caution you can give to someone if they want to buy, like, a scrim shop piece and how they should handle that? And buy it from a reputable dealer because if you stop buying from people you don't know, mm-hmm. you could buy a big and a poke easy as pie. In fact, yeah. uh, I'll go far as to say this. Uh, on, on real scrim shop, you want a nice tooth, don't buy it from an antique dealer uh, who is just an antique dealer because chances are they're not going to know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Even some of the top-notch antique dealers uh, have problems with scrimshaw. Yeah. And, and, and anything you buy there is a pig in the poke. You might get something good, you might not. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, uh, the better the antique dealer, the better the chance that you get something good. Mm-hmm. But I've seen some very good antique dealers make mistakes like that. Sure, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. You know, we vetted something out of the New Hampshire show, and that antique dealer had bought it from another antique dealer on the on the floor, and they're both good quality antique dealers. Both, of them, of course, the exception to the fact that I was pointing out that they had a fake in their booth. Oh. you know, but <laughs> yeah. that's how easy it is. You know? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, this has been great. Thank you so much. Uh, it's been great to see you. Thank you. So this is Martin Willis with Paul the Coast, and we're signing off. Hey, everyone. We always appreciate our listeners, so feel free to email us with any ideas, questions, or suggestions to info at antiqueauctionforum.com. We do 
incur several expenses for this show. It is a free show. However, if you wish to donate, we do have a PayPal button at the bottom of our webpage. If you'd like to help us out for free, please tell a friend about us or rate and leave us a review on iTunes or any other podcast websites that we belong to. If you're planning on purchasing something through Amazon, please use our Amazon search engine located at the bottom right-hand corner of our webpage. It won't cost you a penny more, and we may get a few dollars to help us out. As always, we thank you for listening.